be a real good idea to grab a Bible if you've got one. If you uh, didn't bring one with you, I hope there's one in the pew for you. Um, we do try to provide those there. I hope you'll grab one. Um, two quick things before I tell you about my text. Um, the, the Israel trip that was full as a result of um, the, um, the attacks in Paris has now, um, had, now has six open spots. If you're interested in that, I need to hear from you right away. Uh, this week is pretty much the deadline. And then finally, I want to put in a plug for tonight too. Um, I, I hope you'll be a part of this. I, I'm going to give you some reasons later on um, to be here as just in the text. So I hope you'll come celebrate the Christmas season with us tonight. Guys, I don't have a text for you tonight or this morning, um, but I can assure you that you'll, we'll be reading a lot of scripture. Um, but I hope you'll see why I've delayed it or woven it into the, the sermon itself as we go. For those of you who like to make fun of me about how slowly we move through books, I'm, I'm out to change my reputation this morning. Um, we're going to cover three chapters, Nehemiah 10, 11, and 12. And I'm even going to throw in a verse from chapter 9. So we're going to cover over three chapters in one Sunday. So take that. Um, uh, and, and we're just going to read snatches um, of each as we go. But when you cover that much territory in, in God's Word, um, the challenge becomes really big for me to not lose you, to not to confuse you. And, and I'm going to work hard at not doing that. So bear with me. I'm going to try to um, let you know what's taking place here uh, without overly confusing you. I want to start in chapter 9, verse 38. That's where we'll start this morning. So let me read that. Chapter 9, verse 38. It reads like this. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. Now guys, um, you'll notice it says, and because of all this. What's the this that they're referring to? Well, it's these four pages in front of that, which is chapter 9, which, as you may recall, two weeks ago we looked at. This was, this, this was Israel's period of repentance. Um, in a sense, one might say that this is a snapshot of Israel at her finest. After this four-page-long, lengthy, detailed repentance in chapter 9, they come to the end of that and they realize that they need to do something public. They need to, they need to take some kind of oath, uh, sign some kind of document, provide some kind of public accountability for what they've just repented of. They realize that, and that's what verse 38 is all about. And because of all this... We make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. Then you go to chapter 10, and it opens with a list of names. It's a list of the names of the people who signed that document. There's 84 names in there in the first 27 verses. Uh, Nehemiah is first. Uh, there's 11 priests, 17 Levites, and 44 other leaders. A total of 84 names in there. 84 names are mentioned as signers of this document. Their effort at, at uh, making some kind of public a statement 
um, and providing public accountability, um, the signers of that declaration are in verses 1 through 27 of chapter 10. Then the rest of chapter 10 is you get a discussion of some things that were in that document that we're going to come back to in a minute. Chapter 11 is somewhat of an insert. It's a parenthesis. It has to do with the number of people who volunteered to live inside the city walls in Jerusalem. Let me read it. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11. Now the leaders of the people dwelt in, at, um, at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city. And nine-tenths were to dwell in the other, uh, the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell in Jerusalem. These people, and then you get another list of names. That list of names in chapter 11 are the people who willingly offered to, to move inside the city wall in Jerusalem. It was an act of bravery, and they're being praised for it. Because you see, if a foreign army attacked, the, the ones who would take the brunt of it are the ones who lived inside the city walls and, and couldn't get out. But chapter 11 is a parenthesis. In chapter 12, we turn once again to the main drift of the, of the narrative. Chapter 9, statement of repentance. Last verse, we need to make this public. Chapter 10, 27 verses of 84 names. Rest of the chapter, chapter 10, some content that was in that document. Chapter 11, an insert, a parenthesis. Chapter 12 begins with another list of names. Every chapter has a list of names in them. Another list of names, and it is a different, separate event. It's a worship service. It's a worship service that comes on the heels of these other two events. You see, chapter 10 is a continuation of chapter 9. The parenthesis of chapter 11, and then the, the scene moves forward with the worship service. You got it? There's the panoramic view. Chapter 9, a nation repenting. The realization in verse 38, we need to make this public. The signers in chapter 10, the document, or at least parts of the document, or the contents of the document, last after chapter 10. Parenthesis of who moved in Jerusalem, chapter 11. A worship service that grows out of all of the events that we've just discussed. You got it? That's the panoramic view of chapters 10, 11, and 12. Now, go back with me and let's start looking at some specifics. Let's go back to chapter 10. Uh, chapter 9, verse 38, they say we need to do something public. Uh, get a list of names, 84 names. And then in verse 28, <laughs> we get some exposure as to the contents of this document that they just signed. Notice verse 28 begins with the word, and the rest of the people. <laughs> You've got a list of 84 names. Now the rest of the people, now they're mentioned. Uh, let me read it, verse 28. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, and their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone who had a knowledge and understanding. These joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into. You see that? 
What are they entering into? What is it that they're separating themselves unto? What is it that's going on here, guys? Keep reading. They entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe, and to observe, to do all the commandments of the Lord, of uh, the Lord, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. You get it? Um, chapter nine, verse 38. You know, we need to, we need to make a public declaration of our intentions as a result of seeing our sin. They give you a list of names. And then he begins to tell you what it is that we're committing ourselves to. What is it? What is it that they separated themselves to? Well, generally speaking, they separated themselves to obey. To obey what? Well, the law of God is given through Moses uh, that's contained in that book. They committed themselves to obey the precepts and the commandments that are found in the Bible. They didn't commit themselves to the preacher or to their church or to the pope. They committed themselves to obey what they read in this book. And notice in verse 29, it says, not, they're not going to pick and choose. They're going to obey it all, all the statutes, all the commandments. And then they give you, <laughs> beginning in verse 30, they, they give you three specifics, three areas of concern on their parts, three areas, very probably, of neglect that they'd have gotten them in the trouble in the first place. So now they mention three things, three areas of great concern that they want to um, pay special attention to. Look at verse um, 30. Area number one. We would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land nor take their daughters for our sons. Okay, chapter 9, repentance, verse 38, we need to make this public. Signers, okay, we're committing ourselves to obey. What in particular, besides just generally speaking the law, but what in particular are you committing yourself to? Well, number one, we're concerned that our homes be pure. The first thing is, we're not giving our our daughters to foreign men. Remember Solomon? Remember Solomon, how he got himself in such trouble because he married all those pagan wives and all the devastation that he brought into uh, his family and into Israel because he did? That still happens, you know. That theme is one that's picked up in the New Testament by Paul in 2 Corinthians when he says that we're not to be bound together with unbelief. Christians are not supposed to marry non-Christians. And oh, my friends, how many of our families have been touched because we fail to heed that admonition? That's the first thing in their, in their minds. Okay, we're signing, and we're committing ourselves, and here's one of the things that we want to concentrate on. Our homes. Our homes will be pure. Here's the second thing that they mention, another, a second area of concern. You can see it in verse 31. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. Okay, our first concern is our homes. Here's our second concern. 
the way we observe the Sabbath. Guys, that's a very intricate discussion. It's a very difficult discussion because it's so intricate. But the, but the statement that I think summarizes it the most clearly is found in Exodus 31. Don't turn. Let me just read you this. This is one verse out of Exodus 31 about the Sabbath. Speak to the children of Israel and say, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I am the Lord who sets you apart. Guys, there's all these discussions that go on among Christians about what you can do on the Sabbath and what you can't do on the Sabbath. You can't do this. Don't cut your grass. Don't go swimming. You know, all that business. That's, that's, none of that's my concern. Exodus 31 says that the Sabbath is a sign, which is the, the language that Paul picks up in Colossians 2. The Sabbath is a sign. A sign of what? It's a weekly reminder that we have a special relationship with Yahweh. That because of his grace, we have entered into a relationship with him. And that those other six days, when the world tries to suck us into itself, we get a weekly reminder that we belong in a special, unique way to Yahweh. The Sabbath is a day of rest. And ultimately, the only place we're ever going to find rest is in Christ. No, these people in Nehemiah didn't understand that part, but they understood that there was something real special about the Sabbath. That it was a sign. It was a sign weekly that we belong to God. And so we're going to make certain that the Sabbath is protected. It's a day that we are going to set aside to be reminded that we belong not to this world. We belong to Yahweh. So that was their second concern. First concern was their homes, their marriages. Second concern, that we're pledging ourselves to, you know, we're going to obey. It's the Sabbath. Then there's a third one. There's a third specific, and I want to read it to you. It starts in verse 32, and it goes to the end of the chapter. I'm going to read the whole thing. This is the third specific of this oath that they all signed that's going to be very important to them. Got it? Here it is. Also, we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offerings of the Sabbath, the new moons and the set feast, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. We cast lots among the priests, the Levites and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God according to our father's houses at the appointed times year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all our fruit of all trees year by year to the house of the Lord to bring the firstborn of our sons, our cattle, as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God 
to the priests who minister in the house of our God to bring the first fruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit of all kinds of trees, the new wine, the oil, to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all of our farming communities. And the priests, the descendants of Aaron, shall be the, with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up a tenth of all the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse for the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain of the new wine and the oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, and we will not neglect the house of our God. Um, here's the thing that we're publicly committing ourselves to. We're going to put our name on it. Number one, our homes. That's very important to us. We know of the, of the necessity of having uh, rightful marriages. Number two, the Sabbath. The Sabbath is important. To neglect it is to, be, is, is to fail to remember that we belong to Yahweh. And here's number three. The house of our God. Did you notice that that phrase is mentioned 11 times? The house of our God, 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 the house of our God. Because for us, where we worship that God, and where we worship that God with other of God's people, that is going to be a priority for us. And we are going to provide everything necessary for its upkeep. You know, guys, if I were ever going to bust out on a sermon on tithing, it would be right now. But to your delight, I'm sure, I'm not going to do that. But I am going to say a couple of things, just rather quickly. Um, First of all, gang, to you who only take but never give, I wonder about you. Tell me, is is that how your God deals with you? Um, Everybody knows this verse. It seems like even pagans know John 3.16 that says, For God so loved the world that he took... That's not what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave. He saw that to have the thing that was so precious to him his people, that he had to give the thing most precious to him. He gave. So as an expression of his love, he gave. Now tell me, what kind of giver are you? Or maybe I should ask it this way. Maybe I should say, what kind of lover are you? That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. It has to do with what I call tokenism. You know, when I wrote this sermon, I didn't have this, these, these comments in my notes. I put them in there when I was in Washington, D.C. last Tuesday afternoon. And here's why. Um, last Tuesday afternoon, uh, excuse me, last Tuesday, <laughs> back up, last Sunday morning, 
Um, Susie and I were worshiping in a church in Washington, D.C. You know, I have a daughter that lives in D.C., and they're, they're a part of a little church right on Capitol Hill. It's at North Carolina and 6th. If you know anything about uh, Capitol Hill, if you know where Eastern Market is, her church is right in there. Their church is right in there, and it's a, it's a wonderful little place. It's an old, old, old building. The sanctuary is on the second floor. You have to walk upstairs to get to the sanctuary, and and um, we worshiped there and had a wonderful time. The senior pastor is a dear man, dear man. Um, and, and I just enjoyed so much listening and being able to sit where you sit. You know, and I don't get to do that much. But just, just loved it. We did. I did. Um, anyway, the room is kind of small. I mean, it's, not, it's not small. It probably, I'm, I'm guessing, about 300 people. It seats about 300, and, and I'm guessing, again, there were about 250 there. So there, it wasn't like it was packed, uh, but it was healthily full, if you know what I mean. Um, it, it, and we, were all kinda, we weren't crammed in there. There wasn't standing, none of that, but we were sitting shoulder to shoulder. I mean, uh, my wife was on this side, and a woman was on this side, and, and her husband was on that side, and we were just, I mean, we were, you know, we were touching shoulders. And um, it came time for the offering. See, I don't get to see this much, but this lady reached down and got her purse. And if I'm lying, I'm dying. She got out a $1 bill. Now, this is a fairly prosperous-looking couple, far more prosperous than I looked. She got out a $1 bill. Now, her husband, who looked prosperous as well, um, I don't know whether he was prompted into action when he saw that or whatever he did, but he pulled out his wallet. He got out a $5 bill. And they gave $6. $6 worth is what I want. Just give me $6 worth of God. Hey, guys, um, when I read that passage there, did you notice how many times the first fruits were mentioned? First fruits, firstborn, first fruits, first, first, first. Did you notice that? Six times. Um, And I say to you, if $6 is first fruits, so be it. I just find that hard to believe coming from a group like us. Or from a group like I was in last Sunday, this couple next door to me, or next to me. Guys, did you notice also in that text that I read, 32 through 39, the mention of the word tithe? How many times? Five times. Guys, I didn't make that word up, and neither did the Baptist. We, we didn't make it up. It, in fact, the first time that I think, I might be wrong here, but the th- first time that I think it appears is in Genesis 14, 14 chapters into the book. There it is. Abraham is giving a tenth of all that he has to Melchizedek. And then it goes all through the Old Testament. And then, of course, the most famous passage is in the last book of the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, where, where Malachi says, you're robbing God. And the people say, why are we robbing God? And he said, because in your tithes and offerings... Do you understand, ladies and gentlemen, that what the Bible says is that to... I mean, a tithe is a great place to start. It's just not a great place to finish. But if you haven't made it there yet, you know what you're doing? 
you're a thief. You're a thief. And you're not robbing anything from me. Guys, enough. Repentance, chapter 9. We've got to make this public and be publicly accountable. Verse 38. Names. We'll sign the document. And there's three areas of our concern. Home, Sabbath, giving. That's what you get. Now, um, to hasten on, chapter 11 is a parenthesis. We're just happy that these people have volunteered to move inside the city walls and uh, their names get mentioned. There's another list. And then you come to chapter 12. In light of the repentance and the oath that we're taking, a worship service is called. A worship service is called to dedicate the wall that has now been completed. Something that Sanballat and Tobiah said would never happen has happened. Remember Sanballat and Tobiah? They were the two objectors. They said, oh, those people never get that done. I mean, if a fox jumps up on it, it'll, it'll fall down. They'll ah, never do it. Well, they did it. It's done now. In fact, chapter 12 tells us, which, by the way, is the description of a worship service. Chapter 12 tells us that the, that the wall is so substantial that two choirs, two large choirs, are standing on top of it. Um, uh, verse 31, I think. Um, um, hold on. Um, yes, no, verse 31. So I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall and appointed two large Thanksgiving choirs. Two choirs are standing up on this wall in the midst of this, this, this worship service. Um, it's a worship service that's called so that they can dedicate this wall and praise God for all of the ways that he has provided for them and how he has enabled them to finish this wall. Their repentance that started in chapter 9 led to an oath that then gives rise to a desire to have a worship service at which the giving of thanks predominantly consisting of music. Let me, let me read you that. Verse 29. Uh, verse 27. Now at the dedication of the uh, wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all the places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both in thanksgiving and singing with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. They're gathering all of Israel together to have a worship service to bless God for his great provision and his guidance of them as they built this wall. The wall is completed and they know, they know of one place to go. That is, let's go, let's go thank God. So you've got, you've got singers and cymbals and strings and harps and then some more singers. You've got two big choirs, one of them led by Nehemiah, the other being led by Ezra. They're all standing on the top of the wall, singing at the top of their lungs. That's the scene. But before one note is sung, they do something. Uh, they warm up. No, that's not what they do. 
Look at it in verse 31. Excuse me, verse uh, 30. Then the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people, the gates and the wall. Before things get rolling, we need to purify ourselves. Purify ourselves of what? Well, sin. Because, folks, these people are mindful that the one big problem that we've got that separates us from our fellowshipping with our God is our sin. You know, that's not just an Old Testament concept, ladies and gentlemen. John describes it in his first epistle when he says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So before the worship service started, everybody took a time out to say, I remember that I have no right to be in this God's presence, but because of what he's provided in atonement, I can come. God, forgive me of my sin. Did you do that before you came over here this morning? You were, um, you say you're kind of bored in worship. You know, you're just tired of the perfunctory worship um, that, you know, it's just the same thing. I just go through the steps every Sunday, you know. Well, maybe it's not the music's fault. Maybe it's not even the preacher's fault. Maybe it is that you skip that step. That that's something that you've never done before. You know, guys, I, I hope you notice that at this worship service in Nehemiah 12, the heart of it is music. Um, and notice, this is said for Jimmy Umlov's benefit, there's even a director. Look at verse 42. The singers sang loudly with Jezariah, no, Jezrahiah, the director. There's a director. So here's what you got. You got two huge choirs up on top of the wall. One led, they're following, um, Nehemiah. The other one led by Ezra. And they're, they're, they're going around the city. One's going in, in, in clockwise direction. The other one's going in counterclockwise direction. As they sing, and down in the middle of the city is this director whose name is Jezrahiah, and he's directing them as they're all singing together to the blessing of God. God in thanksgiving for all that he has done for them. Now there's a worship service. In recognition of this wall that you allowed us to build, oh God, we bless you. But we don't have a wall. But here's what we do have. We have a savior. We have a provision that's been made for us at our deepest need. Sin. Did you notice verse 43 where it says, and God made them rejoice? And everybody rejoiced. And they sang so loud 
that they could be heard from miles away. That's not what the text says. It doesn't say that their singing could be heard. It says that their joy could be heard. The people of God, so taken by the provision of God, that they bust out in joy. <laughs> wonder where that went. Well, Dr. Young, I mean, um, you don't understand. I mean, you don't understand. You know, my, uh, my, I got a bad medical report this week, and, you know, my marriage is not that good, and, and uh, you know, we're having some financial problems. I mean, what, what do we have the joy in? Well, how about this? How about deliverance from sin? Did you know the thing that would ruin you for eternity is sin? But God has made a provision in Christ for that. What about eternal security? That is, that it's, my safety is not dependent upon my performance. It's dependent upon Christ performing for me. And I am safe. I am everlastingly safe. What about a forgiveness that I didn't deserve? You know, it says here that the joy could be heard for miles around. What did the person next to you hear? Not from miles away, but from feet away. Did they hear about your gladness? That your sin has been forgiven? That you're eternally safe? And that you have a forgiveness that you didn't earn. <laughs> you know, guys, you know what we've heard? You know what we've experienced as the people of God? We have experienced good tidings of great joy. Because unto us this day in the city of David has been born A Savior. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Have you heard that? Then we have a lot. A lot to be joyful in. Our Father, um, would you remind us again that the reason that we find joy is when we remember the provision that you have made for our sin, a provision that was made for us in Christ Jesus. Oh God, might that stir us to a new level of delight in the gospel, a delight in the message of grace. Oh God, forgive us that we have grown accustomed to your face. It's second nature to us now, and thus we often take it for granted. Would you stir up in the base of your people's souls a new excitement for their salvation?
that is ours because Jesus Christ died in our place. That's enough to sing about, Lord. It's enough to sing about for the rest of our days. We make our prayer, of course, this morning in Jesus' name.